Michael Francis. I'm the Black Director of the Anxiety Arts Festival London, uh, which is directed by the Mental Health Foundation. And this event, we're very, very pleased to be part of this collaboration with the uh, Freud Museum and the University of the Arts London. Um, uh, this event, uh, Charms and Other Anxious Objects, uh, the installation downstairs by Paul Caldwell, and also the conversation this evening with the director of the Freud Museum, Carol So we're very, very proud to be part of this um, event, and um, thank you to all the partners for making this, this happen, including the museum and the university and the artists. Um, just to give you a little bit about the festival, you've got the brochures there. Um, uh, the, the Anxiety uh, Festival is uh, exploring anxiety through the arts, looking at all its manifestations and um, we had a number of events happening all over London. Start, we started on Sunday and we'll be continuing throughout the month. Um, and what's uh, fascinating about these projects um, is how differently they look at the idea of, or the concept of anxiety in all sorts of different ways. And this is a very unique exploration of it. Um, Paul's uh, work, um, the installation which you see downstairs, is centred on our relationship to objects and how meanings can be projected onto them. The, ex the exhibition is a result of visual research in the archives of the Bethlehem Royal Hospital and the Freud Museum, and engages with notions of anxiety, self-perception, worth, and identity. And um, th this uh, project is part of uh, Anxious Practices, which is a series of events in collaboration with the university, which includes also the symposium, um, Anxious Places, Angst, Environments, and Effective Contamination, which is going to take place at uh, the University of the Arts at um, King's Cross Campus, Central St. Martin, on the 26th of June from 10.30 to 5 o'clock. Uh, there is also um, um, an, an event that's going to take place on um, the 30th of June with uh, Jen Tillerson, who's with us here, um, Dr. Jen Tillerson, who's going to be... Um, um, Exploring sensory design, which combines biology with wearable technologies to enhance well-being. And uh, Jenny is going to be um, in, in discussing with Alan Young from King's College Institute of Psychiatry how clothing and jewellery can reduce anxiety using a wearable biofeedback loop when stress levels reach preset thresholds. So, so these are, as I said, all fascinating engagements with the whole idea of um, anxiety. And... Um, very much um, delighted to introduce this evening's conversation, which will explore the whole subject further. Just before I end, though, just to say that we have put some feedback forms on the chairs. It would be lovely if you could take a few moments to respond to those. And there'll be four other opportunities for discussion and exchange at about 7.30 in the garden. Yeah. Some drinks. Yeah. We're in to have a slack initiate about 7.30, right. and then you're welcome to join us. So, so introduce <laughs> um, thank you all very much for coming and thank you Errol for introducing us and I, you know, before I start I'd like to thank everyone at the Freud Museum for making me feel so welcome again I first came here about 20 years ago when I had a bit more hair and it's a little bit quicker on the short distances. Um, but it's been lovely to sort of come back and revisit the place and do this project. Um, I'm delighted to 
have this opportunity to talk to Carol uh, about my work, what we thought would be a good idea is if I start with a short 10-15 minute uh, presentation about some of the work that relates to the um, work that I've made for this exhibition downstairs. And then um, Carol is going to extract some truths <laughs> and truths from me. Um, so, um, uh, is that all in the way? Shall I move down? Um, uh, during yeah, the house? Okay. Um, I thought I'd... Um, in 1996, I was invited to make an exhibition here, which, which I ended up centering around Freud's coat, which is now in the hallway downstairs, but in those days was up in a cupboard in, in, in the loft here. And... Um, the, the then director uh, had seen some of my earlier work, and this was a piece that I'd made for an exhibition in Dublin, uh, at the Art House in Dublin, which really is a kind of cage for a, a, a suit that has, in a way, gone, gone missing. And I suppose, in a way, this was um, a piece which articulated some of the key themes and obsessions that have really kept me going ever since. And in essence, they are the ideas of absence and presence, the idea of exile and journey, um, and also uh, an op um, a desire where possible to work with archives and collections. Um, I suppose archives are the antithesis of the white cube. You, you enter an archive with an already existing set of stories and histories, and I find it kind of quite interesting to try and find my way in those things. Um, the, this was um, from the artist's book, which is in the um, bookshop, called Freud's Coat, and this was one page of it. And basically, in, in this, I took fragments of photographs of Freud's coat and juxtaposed them with uh, memorabilia and objects from from around the con consulting room, and also interlaced that with drawings. And, <clears throat> and this was uh, a piece which was exhibited in the room at the back there in the show, and this was called The Arrival. And really, um, one of the things that sort of struck me as being so um, uh, poignant about this as a house, over and above the fact that Freud is one of the three or four great thinkers of the 20th century. But it also represents the, um, the idea of a, a man having to flee in exile, having to uproot and, and make another home somewhere. And I found that, um, I mean, as um, Ivan knows, I'm no great Freudian scholar. Uh, but I did respond very much to the idea that here this was uh, uh, another fellow human being who had been subjected to this upheaval that in a way, you know, and this madness that went throughout Europe. Now, um, an artist that has always been very important to me is an artist, an Italian artist called Giorgio Morandi. And in terms of ideas of... Um, presence and absence. This is a wonderful etching which sort of in a way hovers between 
what is stated and what is left unstated. So one's not really sure whether this is uh, a work in progress or what things, have, it's as if some things have been removed and just a vacuum left. And I find this very evocative. Anyway, I'm now just going to sort of leap uh, a, a number of years to uh, a project that I did in uh, another house. This was the house at Kettle's Yard that was the um, the house that was owned by Jim Ead, who basically proceeded to construct a house which extolled aesthetic values and relationships. Every object in the house has a little red dot under it, so it can't be moved. So here this is a typical juxtaposition of um, things that occur in the museum. There's um, a screw from the cider press. There's two um, decanters that were given to Jimmy as a, as a present. And above is a painting by uh, the, the Spanish artist Miro, with Tic Tac. And I thought, well, if, if um, Jim fixed all these things together um, with the kind of an aesthetic eye, these are some of my notebook drawings, I would fix them together in marriage forever, for eternity. So these two objects are now wedded together and they just create a new volume. And this was then exhibited in the place of the decanters, so it both sort of talks of absence and presence. Another instance of this, was, um, this is one of the other interesting things for me about working in archives, is so you become aware of what's missing as well as what's there. Um, this is a, um, the, a, a head, uh, a sculpture by Brancusi, head of Prometheus, which is displayed on the grand piano. Um, now, in every house I've ever been to where there's been a piano, it's been filled with picture frames and things like this. There's evidence of the flotsam of family life. Well, this is edited out. And Ian, who's in the audience, Ian Hunt, wrote a fantastic essay in the catalogue uh, exploring the idea of what some of these aesthetic meanings were in the House of Kettleshard. But anyway, once again, I thought I would replace what's missing. And these were cast uh, picture frames in glass um, surrounding the volume of the, of the head as if to sort of articulate what was absent. Um, I always tell my students never to throw away a drawing because you never know when it might be useful. And this was a doodle I did. This is um, Jimmy's wife's bed. And this was the sculpture that resulted. And it was an attempt to, you know, both suggest the presence of, of ribs and the human presence, but also maybe to suggest that this room is a bit monastic and maybe Jim's wife needed a bit more warmth. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not a purist when it comes to working. Um, and this was a, a small sculpture um, with a quotation by the French philosopher uh, Bacala, the house, this house shelters daydreaming, which in a way I felt was almost like a motto for the house at Kettle's Yard. I'm going to... Um, last year I was very um, pleased to sort of work again at Cambridge, but this time at the Scott Polar Research Institute. 
And um, Scott was a figure that had intrigued me as a boy. And, um, and I had this opportunity to make some work in response to their archive. Now, their archive is very, very different to the Freud. This is uh, the goggles that Scott wore on his trip to the South Pole. Um, you know, these were the only things to stop him going blind with the sun. This was a tin of pea soup. These are all in the archives. You know, the, this came back from the South Pole. And this, most important for me, this is what was called a Timmeriggery bag, which was owned by Captain Evans. And this is a, a kind of like a typical collection of stuff for repairing, mending, making do. You know, there's needle, there's thread, there's pencil on the string, there's cotton, there's shoelaces. It's those kind of emergency things, which, um, uh, you know, if you're, in, if you're on the, you know, en route to the pole and there's no 9-11 shops or anything like that, what you don't take with you, you don't have. And this led me to make a series of glassworks which tried to suggest um, ways of thinking through objects um, and suggest some of the objects that they might have taken uh, to explore uh, other aspects of the sense of journey. This is centred around the idea of Christmas on the pole, so there's a little toy trumpet, glass blowers and a penknife. Um, this is about the, those kind of personal possessions for eating and smoking. Uh, and these, which is something that I come back to in this display here, those kind of very important elements of personal hygiene, that are the kind of things that are the difference between being a tramp and being a, a member of society. Um, I'll leave that. And you can see this was another glass piece I made where the centre piece is uh, a razor and brush. And then these are rubber stamps, and on each stamp is the word which spells out, for God's sake, look after our people, which was the last words he wrote. And on the other one is one of the first things he said before leaving Southampton to go to the pole, which is, we must reach the pole this time. So, and also, Scott was made honorary postmaster general, so he could frank the stamps in, uh, in the South Pole. And I thought that was so wonderfully British. You know, I mean, what do you do? Do you return the, return the letters because they haven't been franked? I mean, it's just lu wonderfully ludicrous. And this is um, a piece that I made, which is on display downstairs, called Five Objects Painting South. And I, I thought it was interesting to show it here, because in a way, this is a reverse journey. Uh, this house represents a reverse journey for Freud. It's sort of uh, pointing north, coming from Vienna. And these objects, are th those kind of objects that we share, and that suggest sort of camaraderie. Um, I mean, the one problem with, um, with the knowledge we have about smoking is that that wonderful social aspect of offering someone a cigarette I mean, how many marriages have started off with that gesture? You'll never know. I suppose now it will be, can I have your number on my mobile phone? Um, this is another. And then, this is the work that I 
started to make for the Freud Museum. I was immediately excited about the idea of a festival of anxiety. Those colleagues of mine know that I'm not the most relaxed of individuals. And my doctor says it's my stress that keeps me going. And as an artist, one needs that um, to generate adrenaline. But I think what's so brilliant about the idea of the festival is anxiety is something that is that is common to all human beings. And we, we then sort of talk about a spectrum. You know, those those points where anxiety is no longer manageable. Or, you know, but it's something that we all, we all share. So it's not a matter of some people have it and some don't. We all have it, but it's about degrees. And these were drawings that I started to make where I wanted to suggest the linkage of objects and the way that through these relationships one begins to suggest a kind of life that is made almost like a, um, uh, a spider's web of interconnections. Um, I started doing some research in the Bedlam um, archives, which was, you know, absolutely fascinating. Um, this is one of the objects uh, I found here. This is a drinking uh, goblet for for the patients so that they wouldn't spill the um, the whatever they were drinking. Uh, and also these, um, they have a wonderful collection of intelligence and personality tests from the 20s, 30s and 40s. And I was really struck by the kind of deadpan kind of drawing so that each of, you know, this represents every shoe, this represents every house, every dog. And they are, they are drawn in a way as if the emotion is kept back. Here's another set of these. And this relates to the kind of drawing I've been doing in a number of my prints. And then this comes on to the, um, the charm, the charm bracelets. Um, one of the other things I, I saw in the Bedlam archive were some of the restraints used on the patients, you know, when, um, stress got too much or they were having a fit or something. And it made me actually, I suddenly started to have a kind of connection with the, um, charm bracelet that, that people wear. And, I began to think that, that a lot of those things that are charms, when they become bigger, become burdensome. And it made me sort of think about anxieties and the way that something that is, at uh, one moment is containable, another day becomes something which is restrictive. And so it was a simple, very simple idea to try and suggest something that was a, a restraint. Um, but also, each of these objects are kind of portals into aspects of our dreams and, and aspirations. So, you know, a house, a good luck charm, a heart, <coughs> uh, a wishbone, a suitcase. They all, it's very easy for us to transfer other meanings onto them. This is another one. And, uh, I was saying to Carol, you know, when I work in the studio, I generally have the radio on. And I've been, I suddenly 
suddenly struck me that so many of the songs that we listen to uh, pose philosophical questions about anxiety or loss or stress or aspirations. And so I took um, uh, an image from each of the uh, charm bracelets and juxtaposed them with a song from... So this, this is the Walker Brothers. The, song ain't, the sun ain't going to shine anymore. Um, what becomes of the broken-hearted? When it's suddenly taken away from the song becomes a philosophical question which, in a way, underpins a lot of Freud's thinking, I would, I would imagine. You've lost that loving feeling. Um, and I also have been doing some work with the um, lamp workers uh, at the Sunderland Glass Factory. Um, sorry, the Centre for Glass in Sunderland. And these were some of the drawings I sent them. And they made these objects for me, to my instructions, which once again takes that idea of the charm bracelet but now puts it into glass. And with the glass comes the transformation through material into thinking about fragility and, and delicacy and also transparency. And this connects with... This was a, a flea comb from the Bethlehem Archive. This is um, a group of objects from one of the intelligence tests. And um, this is a bef they've got a lot of before and after photographs. So this is, uh, I, actually, if I shaved, I'd probably look a bit like this. So, um, this is before, and this is after. And in a way, what I think is so interesting is that what, is, what has happened is there's been a transformation in terms of he's been, has, he's been washed and brushed up. You know, he's, he's posed in a, a proper way. Um, you don't really know what's happened mentally, psychologically to this person, but he's been presented to the world. And that led me to make this last piece, which are called Ghosts and Empties, which are about those very personal little items with which we share our lives, and probably our DNA. I remember reading something that they were very worried that people were trying to get uh, hair from Prince Charles's comb so that they could DNA test it to see if the princes were actually his. And, but these are the kind of objects that, that when you die, just go out in a black bag. But these are the, the things that help you prepare yourself to the world, give you dignity, and help you socialize. Um, and these are then, these aren't on show, but these are just two large prints taking those ideas back into printmaking. Well, thank you, Paul. I, I mean, I think Paul's actually covered many of the, the themes that um, we're going to kind of tease yeah. out or explore a little bit more. Um, we had a conversation yesterday mm. which I found really interesting and I was hoping that we'll kind of replicate some of the... We went off on a number of diversions and digressions, but... Uh, that was very good. Think, so yes. so we, we've had the conversation, so we're going to bother again. But, no, I mean, I hope that we can replicate yeah. some of that. 
And this is a conversation as well. So we do want to open it up um, after a bit. You know, we'll, we'll start, but please, I think yeah. there'll be opportunity for everybody to kind of join in the conversation. Um, and I also, well, I was going to start by really saying, you know, it is a pleasure to have Paul's work back in the house. I mean, as he mentioned, um, his was one of the, the, the first artists' exhibitions here um, in what has since become, you know, a, a programme over, you know, nearly 20 years um, of art, contemporary artists coming into to Freud's home and responding both to the the house, the collections, the objects, the ideas, the thinking, and there's been a kind of extraordinary range of different responses uh, from different artists. But Paul was one of the very first of those, and it's, it's really lovely to see his work again. Um, so I really wanted to start there, I and mean, you, you, you touched on this, and in fact most things you know you, you touched on, but I just wanted to go back to to that first exhibition mm. when you you know the book work Freud's coat and the sculpture, the arrival, and just kind of ask you a little bit more about the, the thinking behind that, because I think to, to come into the home of, you know, a very powerful presence, mm. it's not easy for an artist to start. No, um, well, um, if we're talking about anxiety, I mean, I was absolutely terrified. Um, it came about from a, um, a conversation with the then dean at Camberwell, Eileen Hogan, who was a wonderful, and still is, a wonderful networker. And she wanted me to make an artist book. I'd never made one before. She said, well, do you know anything about the Freud Museum? And I said, no. She phoned someone up and, and said, go along and talk to them. <laughs> and I, I was offered a show. Um, things rarely happen like that, you know, but, but when it does, it was, it was, it was good. Having said that I'd do a show, I hadn't got a clue what to do. And I, I, would come um, to the museum, pace around. I took lots of photographs and lots of drawings, in, particularly in the consulting room. I did actually sit on the couch once. Um, and um, one of the things, one of the biggest problems was, I mean, in my mind, there's Freud, Einstein... Picasso uh, are the kind of three kind of greats of the 20th century. You know, these are towering figures through which, you know, almost everything intersects at some point through the 20th century. And I thought, well, you know, what can I, what can I do? You know, I'm not a scholar. I, um, anyway, we had a, a chance encounter um, when I was speaking to the director and as I said, she'd seen the, the piece I'd done about a coat. She said, well, we've got Freud's coat upstairs. So anyway, we had a look at it. We pulled it out of the plastic. And in the pocket, there's a little fragment of paper which said, uh, this is the coat uh, purchased by Professor Freud for his immigration to London. Uh, when he died, his Anna wore it in the garden. And I thought, this was wonderful. First of all, I thought it was such a wonderful Freudian idea of wearing the skin of your father. You know, I could get into that. Um, but the other thing is it, it brought it down to very much the idea of, of a man. Also, the coat is very small. Um, and, uh, you know, one always sort of thinks of, of 
great people in history as being six foot six and towering presences. But it's a very, very small woolen coat. And so that was my that was my starting point. And I started thinking about what it is to uh, have to leave your home, what it must be to try and set up your home. Um, and, and so I started working in, you know, f- from, from that way. You know. um, and it's interesting because um, you talk about absence and presence mm. as being important in your work. And, um, of course... This house is full of absences and presences, and uh, you know the, the study where you know Sigmund Freud's objects collections, but the, the man is no longer there. Um, but I'm also curious because now we actually have the coat on display down in the hall. Some you would have walked past it as you came up. Would you have, if 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 the if the coat had been actually present on display, would you have used it as the subject for your? Uh, no, work. No, I mean, because actually, in a curious way, I've, I, I know this sounds like quite childlike, but I felt I'd discovered it. So this was my contribution to Freudian um, <laughs> thinking, you know, the coat. Um, well, I don't think that does sound, and that's why I asked, yeah. because I thought you would have felt very differently about it if it had just been in a case in the, yeah, in the museum. Yes, yes. yes, it was very different. But I think it's also... Um, strange this relationship we have with objects and how we imbue them mm. with the presence of the uh, the owner I, um, and I, I suppose um, I mean you know in some ways we it's an active belief that that is Freud's coat and that it's his spectacles and his lock of hair um, they could they could have been bought at a shrift shop you know last yes. week but we we trust in that and we then invest something else into them. And I find that quite interesting. And you've talked in in your work about your interest in the relic, and this relates to that, I think, that uh, and the the process by which everyday objects or objects in people's homes suddenly become museum objects that have to be treated with reverence and only handled with white gloves or put in a glass case. And you know, the process that one goes through in order you know, to, to, to do that, and is it whether it means anything well, or not? I suppose it's absolutely fundamental to our practice that this act of transformation, you turn something from, uh, you, you know, you take a piece of paper, which you buy for mm. a pound, and you do something on it, and that is then transformed into something else. Uh, and I find that endlessly magical. Um, and one also tries to imbue a, a meaning into it. So that, I mean, obviously one, um, one can't dictate what the viewer reads from, from an object um, or, or a piece of work. But you can, you can direct and hopefully persuade them to begin to go down a certain route of inquiry. And that's what I, that's what I try and do. I don't want to be sort of dictatorial. Uh, I, I like things to be a little bit sort of open-ended, but I would hope that they're vaguely setting off in the same direction as me uh, by the end of it. And, well, moving on, mm. setting off in a direction then, um, how did you feel that your work here 
kind of influenced your subsequent subsequent work? Because I imagine it did make a difference oh, to your artistic practice. Yeah, it had. Um, I mean, this was my breakthrough show, showing here, and um, you know, it was um, it was really one of the first occasions where I kind of came out as a sculptor. I'd, I'd been very much a kind of closet sculptor. I'd been very shy of even using the word sculpture, uh, sculptor. Um, I used to sort of fudge it a bit and sort of go blurred around the edge. Um, and, but this was a, um, a, a real opportunity to actually sort of state my case. And also, I think that I felt... Uh, I, I do like the fact that when you're working in a place like this. As I said, it's the antithesis of the white cube. Mm. The white cube uh, acts on the principle of stripping everything else away so that any little thing that is placed in it provides some sustenance for the imagination. Um, on the other hand, when you're here, it's, kind of, it's a bit like being in a family where you only get a bit of space mm. and you've got a sort of elbow, you know, a little bit of room... But also, you have these wonderful um, things that are bouncing off other things. So, um, you know, so I, I find that sort of you know very exciting. And, and you know, even when one finishes the project, actually, there's so many ideas that are flying around that you want to kind of carry through. And you know, I mean, we were talking yesterday about, in terms of absence and presence, that the Vienna House yes. is a bit empty and this is full and that idea of journey and so you know yes absolutely i mean we were talking yeah. for, for those who, who don't know that um you know freud's house apartments in vienna which is also now a museum uh and where he lived for more than works for 40 odd years whereas here he was only, only lived for mm. you know, a year um but here is the place that's sort of full of full of the objects, the collections, um, the apartments in Vienna, which is m much more resonant in some ways, but is empty of much physical material uh, mm. possession. So you're, you're right, that sort of you know the two two sides of one mm. person and that complementarity mm. is is interesting. But I was also interested in. I mean, you, you said you know, again, about the not liking to work in the white cube mm. space, but I think you're unusual in that respect. I mean, it's quite unusual for an artist to be sort of happier, if you like, working in the kind of mess and clutter and lived in places. And, and from the work you've shown, it's not just here, you know, Kettle's Yard, other places, which are very much mm. occupied family uh, or lived in homes. And um, Well, um, I, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about... Uh, uh, about finding out about other artists is you, you have to find out um, you have to find out not only what an artist does but in a way some kind of glimpse about the way they live because as an artist you you need some role models that you might be able to fit into now I mean you know Mirandi had a little studio well he didn't have a studio he had a bedroom um, in in the flat with his three uh, sisters. And, um, you know, Giacometti's studio in Paris was, um, you know, Giacometti had his bed in one corner and, you know, it was a bit of a mishmash. I've always 
been incredibly self-conscious about the idea of the studio because it makes me think that I'm going to make art and that terrifies me. Um, if I try and do... Makes you anxious. <laughs> Absolutely. You see, you're getting my character up to a team now. Um, but, um, I mean, even... I mean, on, on, on the one hand, in my, in my dreams, I sort of think of a wonderful studio that is laid out for me to work. On the other hand, if it was, I wouldn't be working there. I'd be working in the kitchen or in the corner, which is what I do at home. With the so, radio on. Yeah, and, and it, it somehow keeps me, on the, keeps me in touch with the things that I want to be in touch with. Mm. But there's also, as you say, talk, a lot of talk about delving into archives, mm. and not just any archives. You seem to choose ones that are unusual, a little quirky, yeah. little known... Um, you know, what is it that kind of attracts you to these kind of really slightly hidden uh, archives? Um, well, there's a certain scale about them that I, li- that I like. I mean, I've been no good in the British Museum. It's, you know, it's too mm. big. Mm. I'd, I'd have to find, you know, whereas, say, something like the John Soane's Museum, you know, I could accommodate me, really, I think. Um, so uh, there's, there's a certain kind of scale um, that I like. I like the idea that, that that these houses, the one thing that's missing is the person that it was about. You know, so mm. here there's Freud and Anna mm. uh, are, are missing, and Kefnishard, Jimmy is missing in the in the Scott archive. Scott and his colleagues are missing, mm. and um, and that gives me a vacuum that I can begin to fill. You know, it's a place to uh, dream, um, but also it's a way of me finding out things. I'm, um, I, I like, I like to discover things. And that's interesting about the person missing because that also relates to the work that you showed us and yeah. some of us about the ordinary mm. objects, those mm. very basic objects, the comb, the, yeah. the hairbrush, mm. the nail scissors, whatever. And, and again, this kind of transformation, something becoming a museum object. I was interested, we've just put on display in the uh, Anna Freud room next door, um, Anna Freud's travel bag, which mm. included you know, things like soap and a hairbrush mm. and so on. Mm. So again, you know, transform mm. that into a museum object. And it, again, in this house, the whole kind of emphasis on personal hygiene. Sigmund Freud, yeah. when he was uh, living here, was suffering very badly from mm. cancer of the jaw. He had a prosthesis. Mm. Uh, in his mouth, you know, he he wasn't able to maintain that mm. personal hygiene towards the end because his mouth was mm. so uh, fetid and, mm. and and unpleasant. So again, these sort of mm. relationships between trying to keep yourself uh, together and the importance of those apparently unimportant mm. objects in people's lives. I think there are also ways that we make connections with um, people in history. You know, yes. big. Um, you know, it's it's often the the very little things that are familiar. You know, I suppose in a way, the you know the idea of the uncanny and things like this. You know, where you uh, come across something, you know, in the museum that is very close to something you've got at home, and suddenly there's a a different kind of connection. You know, you probably don't get that when you go and look at the Mona Lisa. Mm. You know, because I mean, in a way, that's sort of you know art and and up there. Um, I think the other thing that we, we touched on uh, about the kind of objects I'm interested in is that when you fly long haul, 
you get a little bag with all these objects, and each airline does it slightly differently. But I do like the idea that somewhere, you know, in the corporate mentality of British Airways, someone has sat down and think, thought, you know, what does, what does Paul need for this journey? You know, they need to clean his teeth, they need a pair of socks, you know. And there's, there's something, um, uh, well, Almost touching. <laughs> yes, slightly tender. It's the tender side of capitalism. <laughs> but we also discussed how on these long-haul flights, it's, never, it's, it's sort of a bit of a pretense, you know. You're never going to feel really comfortable, even with your toothbrush no. and your, you know, your comb and no. your eye mask and the food you're given is never really going to make you feel that you've had a really good supper and now you're going to settle down and have a no. nice sleep. Yeah. Um, but the drink is always good. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Disguises a multitude of yes. things. Um, I wonder if maybe now would be the time to kind of open open it out a little bit more to either questions, or I don't know, Ivan, whether you have anything you want to say. Or... No, I've got the... Oh, you've got the microphone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, there's a, uh, someone at the front. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I can probably project. I work with Paul, so I've seen his work a lot. But I was absolutely stopped in my tracks when we saw the pictures of the drawings of everyday objects from the that looked exactly like your work already. <laughs> if you showed, if you hadn't told me which was which, yeah. I would have thought it was your drawing. And I'm suddenly beginning to wonder if what I've that cheated. <laughs> but what it what it means in terms of your work over a long period, mm. this desire to to almost like to be every man, to you know mm. the generic, mm. the, you know, and it goes with that thing about the. Mm little wash bags yeah. and the everyday objects. Yeah. And, and how you've managed to capture that sense of, of, I mean, not being recognisable as Paul Caldwell, but mm. it is recognisable mm. as Paul Caldwell. It's, it's, very, mm. it's very strange the way it's generic, yet you. Well, um, um, it's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I, my, when I first went to art college, I wanted to be Jackson Pollock. Uh, yeah, and I rolled in, you know, thinking, you know, give me a big canvas, I want to express myself. And I slapped around, and it looked ridiculous. <laughs> um, and I just felt so self-conscious. And what I've done, really, ever since, is really try to put a, um, a rein on self-expression. Uh, um, you're discovering all these things around you. You're hiding for uh, No, no, it's not, it's, it's not hiding. It's actually, I think that it creates a great attention by what you hold back and restrict um, than if I just let myself go. Um, and uh, so in my, in my drawings, uh, in particular, I've increasingly trying to, to remove the kind of expressive mm. gesture. You know, um, I'm not very good at, at the kind of uh, gesture. I like to sort of think about something and, and hone it down. 
and, and things, like, things like that. I mean, I'm more of a poet than a novelist. You know, and, and the poet, uh, not, not, I'm not saying poet as in the quality of me as a poet, but just as an activity. Um, but, you know, the, the, the poet um, tries to make more from less, and the novelist tries to make less to more. And I, I suppose, you know, I'm in, I, I go into that kind of category. And that's interesting, obviously not knowing, not knowing you nearly as well, but what you're saying on how you've described your work as well, and talking about absence and presence, that you're one of those artists who um, is, you're not, as many artists do, you're absolutely out there in your work, and it's very obvious who is the artist. Mm. You're more of a kind of uh, not absent, that, that yeah. doesn't sound right, but um, you're not somebody who's, as you said, making it very clear that this is Paul well, in a certain kind of way, it does look very, you know, you can always tell yes. it's a work by Paul. But, but, but it's, 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 it is it's this very fine line between yeah. kind of mm. past to interpret and, and, and being recognised for your work. I mean, for me, it, I was very interested in the, <coughs> the phrases like the sun ain't going to shine anymore because, in a very psychoanalytic sense, of course, one doesn't literally mean that tomorrow there will be no sun. Something else is being meant exactly what everyone was not sure, but it's not literal. In a sort of sense, you may not be expressive in some grandiose sense, but you're not being literal either. Mm. And that's that kind of interstitial, as we're going to say, space between the poetic and generic. Mm. Perhaps really where you're you're at. Mm. Well, also we 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 use you know we use songs to say things that. We um, uh, perhaps don't have the confidence to say if they were our own words. So in a way, songs give us a repertoire of popular quotations, you know, and and they're, they're, I think they're they're very useful, you know. Um, but they they also sort of fix in the brain, and you know, I mean, you know, Bob Dylan sort of talked about you know when uh, you know when poetry is turned into a song, then it sort of gets out into the world in a very different kind of way, reaches a very different kind of audience. I was interested in your description of the charm bracelet as these small things Mm. that are big and entrap you. I'd be interested in your thinking about that. And the reason I say that is because Someone's it's a very exact description of a particular process of anxiety where the object of anxiety, you focus on whatever the object of someone's anxiety disorder is, they focus mm. on it. The focusing on it literally is focusing and it becomes bigger. Yeah. So people actually do see things bigger yeah. than they really are. So in some ways you capture something absolutely accurate in the centre of that anxiety there. So it's just interesting how you as an artist came to that experimental psychologists also come into another kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to start paying for some of these things. It's very expensive research. Fantastic question. Um, well, the, the thing is, when, when, when I'm making stuff in the studio, um, a, lot of, a lot of things are actually sort of made quite intuitively. All those objects are made three or four times 
before I get the scale that they that they feel right, and that's also to do with the weight of the object. So I mean, they were um, they were all cast at foundry in, in Chelsea in aluminium, so they they have a kind of physical weight, which is also what I associate with a burden, you know, something that actually uh, re- restricts you. Um, but I was very fascinated by these, these charm bracelets. I had an aunt who I hated uh, <laughs> when I was a child, and she had um, a charm bracelet with... Uh, she had one which was charms, and one with souvenirs of every holiday she came to. <laughs> and these things used to rattle around, and I used to sort of think of her as there's something to do with a skeleton, because, you know, she moved in this rattly way. Um, but this sort of microcosm of, you know, um, an almost a, um, a narrative that some people, that, that, that people are putting out into the world through these braces, all these choices that are not made um, casually. You know, somebody's gone into a shop and picked a heart, uh, or picked a, um, a set of cards or a dice or something like this. And each of those things has a, a real meaning for them at that moment. But I think it's also advertising their aspirations as well. Well, that's how I started to interpret it. And, uh, and the, the problem was getting them in the right scale, because... If they got any bigger than that, they'd suddenly start becoming a bit monstrous. Uh, but they're sufficiently large to encumber. Um, but they still, I think, keep enough connection with the, the origins. They weren't actually modelled from Chambers. They were all just made in my head, where um, I tried to imagine what a house would look like and what, you know, a house needs windows and a door and a chimney. Um, so in some ways, I, when I make things, I'm almost asking myself questions about what is this, what is Lester in this, obje- in this object in order for it to be read as, for example, a house or a suitcase or something. As a, as a sculptor, one is sort of, you know, both sort of thinking with the, um, the motif that one's working with, but also with the material. And I suppose one of the things is that um, I'm not 
I've never been an artist that has had a material with which I work all my ideas through. Um, I've always you know, started with a kind of an idea and then had to search around for the appropriate material. Uh, and when the two come together, I feel something exciting happens for me. So I suppose with the... Um, in each of the pieces, the material is is very different. The uh, the use of bronze in the hallway in the uh, five objects pointing south, they have sort of quite a leaden weight, and um, and for me have sort of a feel of kind of gunmetal, um, something to do with memorialisation and and things like that. The the aluminium, I consciously made a decision to cast the, the two charm bracelets in aluminium rather than bronze uh, because I wanted that kind of silver quality uh, to resonate with the original kind of silver. But also, the, the aluminium, you can't tarnish. Uh, with, with bronze, uh, you know, just even your, your touching it will start to patinate it. I mean, um, with old, um, with, you know, for example, with Japanese swords, the swords master, once he'd made the sword, would wipe his brow, brush the blade, and then it would be buried for six months. And that oxidization of the perspiration would colour and patinate the, the metal. Picasso used to tell his children to go piss on the bronze, and that would give a, a good green and things like that. Um, horse piss was, uh, gives a very, uh, very rich um, colour. Um, but I wanted these things to not have any of those kind of connotations. I wanted them to be, uh, in a way, slightly kind of crude and, and the metal really coming across. And then with the um, little objects cast in white resin, uh, I wanted them to have a kind of slight, uh, a kind of purity, uh, where everything else has been stripped away from them, uh, you know, any colour or any difference in material. And, and so then you just look at these white shapes as if they're ghosts. So that was the kind of thinking. And, and I suppose in each one of those, the, I suppose the hope is that they folk the kind of anxieties we've been talking about. Is there any final questions? Because if not, I think talking about the actual mm. materials might be a good time, those of you who haven't had a chance mm. really, to, to go down and look at the uh, Paul's mm. exhibition and the works mm. downstairs. They um, are wonderful. Well, I, should, the last well, I should just say that um, the, the set of postcards, uh, there's a... Uh, uh, a almost like a, a box set that I've, I've made that in an addition of 50 that are available in the uh, shop, which includes the uh, list of the, the sound the soundtracks and the recordings of uh, each of the songs. Well, thank you very much, Paul. It's really been fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, yes. and, uh, I hope the rest of you enjoy the exhibition and do, do join us for a treat downstairs as well. So thank you all. Thank you.